And so let us hear God's word from Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, our Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin today, uh, two thoughts. First of all, uh, as we think back over the course of history, uh, we can point to certain uh, turning points in history, and in many ways the list can be rather endless. But uh, as we think especially of some of the, the big ones, we might say, of course, the fall in Genesis 3 was a major turning point. Or we think of the flood, or the Tower of Babel, or the calling of Abraham. Uh, we think, of course, obviously, of the Exodus. Uh, they uh, redid their calendar because of that event. Uh, even coming to Mount Sinai and the conquest and so forth. And then, of course, as we come forward into the New Testament, we think of the birth and death and resurrection of Christ. Now, as we consider these things, and we can certainly think of other key events throughout history, um, the question that often comes is, which is the most significant? Well, I think it's uh, a fair case to make that the resurrection of Christ is the most significant event in the history of the world, even more so than his birth. And the things that Paul says here in verse 4 would point us in this direction. Now, the other thing I want to mention here by way of introduction is this. Uh, <clears throat> does God ever do things that confuse us? Well, certainly when it comes to his providence and the trials and sufferings that we face and so forth, the answer is yes. Not because God is confusing, but because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around these kinds of things. And as we come here to this discussion of the person of Christ in verses 3 and 4, who he is, there are a lot of things that we might say are confusing to us, but not because they're inherently confusing. It's because in our limited nature as finite creatures, in our sinful nature, we have a hard time putting all of this together. Not because it's inherently confusing, but because of the difficulty uh, to comprehend it. And so we need to focus on what we know and why it's significant uh, for us. And not try to explain every last single thing, because as we start going down those paths, then that's when we tend to get into trouble. And so, as we saw last time in verse 3, Jesus is God's son, fully God. He's not part God. God can't be part God and be God. He cannot lay aside any of who he is, uh, because then he would cease to be God, but he can't do that. So... He is fully God in every way. Likewise, Jesus is David's son. He is fully human. He's not part human. How can you be a human without being fully a human? And so like Adam, 
Jesus was fully a human without sin. And so he had, uh, and still does, have a human mind, will, and emotions, and so forth. He didn't just appear to be a human and was just a ghost or a spirit or something like that. And so Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why is this important? Well, simply, if Jesus were only a man, then he would be a sinner like the rest of us. And we then would still be under judgment. He had to be God in order to perfectly represent us. On the other hand, if Jesus were only God, then he could not represent us. Because only a human can represent another human. And so no animal, no angel, not even God himself can represent us. Only another human. And so Jesus is fully human. Both God and both man. And because of this, the work of Christ is accomplished and therefore we are saved. Anything less than these ideas, we really are believing in a different Christ. It's a different religion. So, in verse 3, we talked about what we often call in our theological circles the humiliation of Christ. This is where God, God's Son, came, humbled himself, and added human nature, lived on earth, suffered, was tempted, he died, was buried, and so forth. Well, now here in verse 4, we transition from Christ humbling himself to the exaltation of Christ. So if you look at your handout here, this insert uh, about verses 3 and 4, um, and, and let, let me call your attention to the arrangement of it here again. I mentioned this last week, and let me say it here again, and that is, uh, this was very likely an early creed in the church, or possibly a hymn that they sang. And so, like we saw in the Psalms, it's so carefully arranged that it's hard to look at it in just one way. And that's certainly the case here. Verses 3 and 4 are arranged in this chiasm. So the middle line is most important. And that is the first part of verse 4. And that's what we'll look at here uh, in part today. It's also, though, arranged in parallelism. So these two lines, these who lines, are in parallel. They rhyme Okay, but clearly there's enough differences to call it synthetic, not synonymous. And so the first line is the idea of his humanity. The second line, hey, his exaltation, and so on. And so with that uh, briefly in mind, um, <clears throat> we come now to, if you will, the second half of the chiasm, or the second line here in the parallelism. All right, now, <clears throat> as I mentioned, this middle line is the most significant. Who had been appointed or declared Son of God with power? The problem is, there are so many questions and so many different views that it becomes almost impossible to try to figure it out. But, that said, I think we can. And I'm going to focus especially on what it does mean. But let me start by saying this. Many people over the centuries have taken this to mean that uh, Jesus was a regular man, okay, verse 3 says that, right? Seed of David and so forth. And then God adopted him. And that happened at his baptism. And he became the son of God. He wasn't the son of God before, just a regular man, but he became the son of God with power, right? Well, 
this, as I mentioned, is sometimes called adoptionism. The Mormon church, this is basically their view. Um, But remember how verse 3 started? Concerning his son. It begins by saying that Jesus is the son of God. Even before he took on flesh, before he came as a man, he was already God. So he doesn't become God. He's not adopted or something like that. What it is teaching us is that when Jesus came, he looked like a regular guy like you and me. He was humble. He was weak. He suffered. And when he died, it actually seemed to be proof that he wasn't the Messiah. Now, as I did last week, we're going to look at some uh, different verses here to help us to understand this better. And so, first of all, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection of Christ, remember the, uh, these two men were heading from Jerusalem back to their home in, in Emmaus. And Jesus catches up to them. And notice what they say, especially in verse 21. Luke 24, verse 21. We, they're speaking to Jesus now, right? We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now you see what they're saying. The death of Christ seemed to prove that he was not the Messiah. Or to add into what Paul is saying, the death of Christ seems to prove that he is not the Son of God. How could he be God if he's dead? How can God die? Does Jesus' death prove that he was a sinner like the rest of us? Well, with some of these questions... Let's go to the end, as it were, and work our way backwards. And I think the chiasm is arranged in such a way to help us to do it in that way. Um, Now, we'll leave the Jesus Christ, our Lord, for the very end. But if we look at the line right before that, from the resurrection from the dead. If we start with this idea and work our way backward, I think it'll help to answer many questions. And the point is simply this. The resurrection of Christ changed everything. He is the first to rise from the dead and stay alive. Lazarus died again. But but Jesus didn't. He stayed alive, the first to do so. Now you remember, of course, that Paul will go on to say in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And so the reason why we die is not because we have pneumonia or cancer or whatever. All those things are secondary. The reason why we die is because we're sinners. And yet, I thought Jesus was sinless. So how come he dies? How do we understand this? Well, let's turn here now to 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. In this nice statement, and some of you maybe have memorized this at some point in time, In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul basically answers this question in a nice nice statement here. Uh, Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he made him, that is, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, at this point, we're going to focus on the first part of, of this verse. God made Jesus who knew no sin. He was sinless. To be sin. Sinless people don't die. Jesus should not have died. The reason why he died was he uh, became sin for us. Our sin 
was imputed to him, placed upon him, and he dies in our place. He wasn't fundamentally changed and became a sinner, but our sins were placed upon him, and he dies in our place. So because of this, because Jesus is someone without sin, he could not stay dead. We stay dead when we die because we're sinners. Jesus died for our sin, but he could not stay dead. He had to come to life. So maybe you think of an analogy of of when you're playing in a swimming pool and you're trying to keep the ball under the water. You can only do it for so long, right? You might push it down for a while, then it, it slips and it pops up. Or maybe you try to put your whole body over it and then you flip over and it pops up and, you know, right? We've probably all done this at some point in time. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Okay? Jesus' sinlessness meant he had to, as it were, pop up again. He had to rise from the dead. He could not stay underwater, so to speak. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the resurrection of Christ declares to everyone that he really was sinless. And so we have other passages like in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 7, for example, that say these things. And if he's sinless, this also tells us that he was God's son and still is. And so Jesus is sinless. The resurrection shows that. Jesus' resurrection also shows that he is God. Okay. So um, the resurrection of Christ is declaring things. It's announcing things. Another thing that it declares to us is that all of the things that Jesus said and did were true. All that he said we can trust. The resurrection of Christ declares that the Father accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. That he died not for his sin but for ours. That he lived a life of perfection in our place. The resurrection of Christ proves all of these things to be true. And so we are seen as holy and righteous before God, and we do not have to face judgment. Now, Paul here is not emphasizing what he did. He's emphasizing who he is. But obviously, they go together. And so because of this, the things I've just said here in the last few minutes, this is one reason, and a huge reason why some people will say that the turning point in history was the resurrection of Christ. Not the birth of Christ, though we've changed our calendars based on the birth of Christ, but actually the resurrection of Christ, not the death of Christ, as important as these things are. Okay? If Jesus died for his own sin, there would be no resurrection. Okay? But the resurrection proves everything proves that he was born of a woman and yet is God's son. It proves that his death, it was an atoning death in our place. The resurrection verifies it all. And so this is why many would say this is the turning point of history. And so no surprise then that Paul includes this and this hymn or creed has this uh, in, in this line. Now, with that in mind, let's go upward as it were, <laughs> okay, According to the spirit of holiness. Now this too has all kinds of questions, not quite as many, but still uh, many questions here. And, and let me just briefly mention the three most common. And uh, spirit of holiness, what does this mean? Some people say it refers to Jesus' divine nature. 
Okay, so according to the flesh refers to his human nature. This refers to his divine nature. Okay, Paul never refers to it that way anywhere else, so leaves us with some questions. Other people suggest this is referring to, to Jesus' actual soul, his spirit, and that his soul was perfect. And so it's just simply saying that he was holy, that uh, he never sinned. Um, okay, certainly that's true. Uh, I would agree with those who would hold to this, the third main view, and that is this is referring to the Holy Spirit. The spirit of holiness is referring to the third person of the Trinity. The challenge here is spirits never called this anywhere else in the scriptures. Nevertheless, it does seem to make most sense. Paul has referred to God the Father in verse 1. He's referred to the Son in verse 1 and in verse 3. And so it makes sense as he begins this letter that he would then also mention the Holy Spirit. And so it seems like uh, that's what he's doing here. So with that in mind, assuming that's what he means, um, remember that the Spirit is the one who is given to enable us to do the work of ministry. That is true for us, that is true for David, that is true for Samson, and even Saul for that matter. Uh, you see the Spirit coming upon uh, God's people to do the work of God, and that was true also for Jesus. The Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism to enable him to obey perfectly as the Messiah completely, all the way to the cross and unto his death. And so the point here then is that not only does Jesus have a divine nature that added a human nature, not only did his divine nature strengthen his human nature to be perfect, but the Holy Spirit also was poured out on Christ to strengthen him to do the work of mediator. So let's turn here a moment then to Matthew chapter 3. And of course we see this in uh, the different gospels, all four of them even. And uh, But here in Matthew's account, note verse 16, here regarding the baptism of Christ. It says, <clears throat> When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Then look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And of course, Jesus obeyed. The Spirit strengthened him, enabled him to obey perfectly. Even the angels came and ministered to him uh, after that was done. And so uh, here we see then... Uh, one primary passage that shows that the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, enabled Jesus to do the work of ministry. Now, to the primary point here in Romans 1 verse 4, is that the spirit then raised him from the dead. So let's turn here a moment then back to Romans, this time chapter 8. All right, in Romans 8, note especially verse 11. It says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see how Paul in that verse is combining the Father with the Spirit? And so it is this, the spirit of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Wasn't he doesn't just simply say the Father did. 
he says, the Spirit of God. Okay, so referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you turn over to chapter 10, verse 9, we see it say this then, familiar verse to many of us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When Paul uses the term God, he's referring to God the Father. Almost every single time. I think it's all but two <laughs> of the many dozens. Um, and then if you turn back to John chapter 10, and uh, uh, here in this context of the, the good shepherd, uh, in John chapter 10, note beginning verse 17, it says, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. You see what Jesus is saying here. When he was on the cross, he had the power to give up his spirit. The crucifixion did not, in the end, kill Jesus. Jesus gave up his spirit before that could happen. He had the authority to do that. But he also had the authority to take it up again. So as we put these passages together, we see that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. Now, <clears throat> the emphasis that Paul is making here in Romans 1 verse 4 is that the Spirit did, the Spirit of holiness, according to him, Jesus was raised from the dead. Which brings us now to this middle line. Therefore, Jesus is declared to be Son of God with power. Now, the New King James uses this term declare, which is fine, okay? but just recognize it's more than just words. He's not just saying something here that Jesus is the Son of God, but, but, but there's an establishment happening, an appointing to uh, a position he is installed officially designated these are some of the terms that uh, some of the commentators use here in this way uh, think of jesus as a king he's inaugurated he is put on his throne so again it's not just words there's an action that goes here now that's not going to happen until he rises from the dead and he's not going to rise from the dead unless he's been given that authority and god raises him by his spirit now remember, Jesus has always been God's son. Verse 3 tells us that. He is the eternal son of God, and that does not change. But when he took on human nature, there was a change, not in his fundamental divine nature, but and so his you know, godness does not change, but he adds a human nature here. And so when he was born of Mary and descended of David, Hey, there was this kind of change. And so in his humanity, he had to obey. He had to go through all the steps. He had to be born of Mary. He had to be a little baby. He had to obey as a child and as a young adult and all these sort of things, right? But through that whole process, it looked like he had no power. It looked like he was not omnipotent. He was, even on the cross, his divine nature is upholding the universe. But it didn't look that way. Okay. But after the resurrection, 
then people are like, yes, he really is God's son. He is the son of God with power. When he was born of a baby and grew and matured and got tired and beaten and flogged and so forth, that, it, it seemed to say that he wasn't God. Okay. <clears throat> now, there were glimpses of the glory of Christ through his miracles, walking on the water, raising the dead, calming the storm, and so forth, the transfiguration of Christ before Peter, James, and John. Um, there were glimpses of his glory, of his power, but it was hidden. It was veiled in his flesh. But after the resurrection, it's not veiled in the same way. At the ascension of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ, it is now clear for everyone to see. That said, we need to see through the eyes of faith. And when he returns, everyone's going to see and there will be no questions at all about who Jesus is. Okay. And so as the God-man, as the Messiah, Jesus had to obey and fulfill the covenant and finish what God sent him to do. And until he did that, he was not declared to be the son of God with power. He just looks like a regular guy. Add to that the fact that Jesus could have failed. In his humanity, he could have sinned like Adam. It was a true temptation. It was a true, um, if you will, risk. But his divine nature strengthened his human nature. The Spirit of God came upon him to strengthen him, and so he did succeed. And so now he is declared to be the Son of God. Okay. So... <clears throat> This is what Paul is saying here. This is what this hymn, this creed is saying here. Now let me uh, read a moment from, uh, this is James Boyce, and he's quoting from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who summarizes it this way. The Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God before. He is always the Son of God. He was the Son of God before the Incarnation and from all eternity. Where then is the change? It is in the form that he assumes and what we have been told in verse 3 is that when he came into this world, he did not come as the Son of God with power. No, he came as a helpless babe. He was the Son of God, yes, but not the Son of God with power. In other words, when he came as a babe, the Son of God was veiled in the flesh. But what the apostle says is that in the resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God with power. It is there that we realize how powerful he always was. So again, don't think that he was not omnipotent when he was hanging on the cross. He was. It just didn't look like it. And now it is clear. The resurrection is what brought about this change. Okay. So verse 4 is not teaching us that there's a fundamental change in Christ. He did not become God. He didn't add back in divine attributes or anything like that. No. Nor is it teaching us that the saving work of Christ was just going to be automatic as soon as Jesus was born. There still was this, if you will, risk that he might not obey. But he did. And so thus he truly died as an atoning sacrifice. He drank the cup of God's wrath. And he did not fail 
And so therefore, the resurrection was a guarantee, and thus our salvation is secured. And once that happened, the veil then was taken away. And so what we see here between verses 3 and 4 is not a fundamental change in Christ's person, but a change from this era of his being humbled to this era now of his exaltation. The apparent weakness of Christ is now replaced with triumphant power. So in this sense, we can say that he was greater than before the incarnation, but we need to be careful how we word that so we don't uh, get into wrong places. Once again, as I said at the beginning, hey, <clears throat> this is not fundamentally confusing, but it is hard for us to wrap our minds around it. God is not a God of confusion. How could he make his son confusing fundamentally? It's impossible. So if we're confused by this, it's um, more the fact that maybe we need to work harder at trying to understand it. And recognize, again, that God is not fundamentally a God of confusion. But it is beyond our capacity to comprehend. All right, now let me try to put this in an analogy that might be helpful for us. Probably all of us here have uh, read Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings, or at least seen the movies, or maybe some of you have heard about them. But probably most of us here have have, uh, are familiar with them. And, and Tolkien very deliberately did not make one character the Christ figure. He deliberately subdivided Christ, if you will, into three, into Aragorn, into Frodo, and into Gandalf. Okay? The point that we're making, Paul's making here, fits best with the Aragorn character. Aragorn was always the heir of Isildur. He was always the king that would sit on the throne. Okay. But he had to go through the work before he could sit there. Right? So when he was a ranger in the north, he didn't look like the heir of Isildur. And people mocked and laughed when they heard that he was. But there were glimpses right? when he was in Rivendell. There were glimpses as to who he was. Uh, certainly as you get toward the end when he's holding the palantir and, and striving with Sauron. Or as he goes through the paths of the dead and he's not struck down. Or he, as he sails up the Anduin and then eventually even goes into Minas Tirith as a healer. Right? He, he's veiled there. The book, you see that in the books, not in the movie. Um, but even yet, he's not declared to be king yet. The work is not yet finished. And this, this is our difference, right? All analogies are going to fail here. <laughs> but Tolkien, right? Sauron's not defeated by Aragorn, but by Frodo. And the death and resurrection theme was by Gandalf. It wasn't by Aragorn. So there are clearly some differences. But the point is, back to Aragorn, is that he had to go through these steps of obedience he had to fulfill the prophecies, fulfill the promises before he could be established as king. And so in that sense, okay, hopefully it gives us a little bit better glimpse of how this is working. Jesus came and he obeyed. He's far greater than an Aragorn figure, obviously. But you see this change of status. Always the son, 
always invested with power but veiled. And then after his obedience, he then could be invested as king. And so after the resurrection, after the defeat of Sauron, he then uh, was, was crowned. All right, now let's look, let's go from this image now to these words of the confession. Let's turn in our hymnals to page 853. As we uh, looked at last time, let's read a little bit more. <clears throat> in uh, chapter 8 here of the confession, we <clears throat> last time looked at paragraph 2. Let's now look at paragraph 3. And so it reads, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety. Now, as always, there's a lot packed in there. But do you see the importance of the Spirit enabling Christ? He has a divine nature, he has a human nature, but the Spirit is going to enable him to do this work, to execute the office of mediator. And then the paragraph ends, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Okay. So the Father calls him to do this. Jesus didn't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to do this and, and take it on himself. The Father calls him to do it. And notice also he's been given power and authority to execute this, right? To lay down his life and take it up again. So then in paragraph 4, this office the Lord Jesus does, did most willingly undertake. Now, last time we read this part, this first part, the humiliation of Christ, how he humbled himself. Okay? And uh, then about midway through the paragraph, on the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven and there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making intercession and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. He is declared to be the son of God with power. It's basically what it's saying. Let's turn to page 871, and uh, here was some of the catechism. We looked at question 27 last time. Now here, question 28. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, and ascending up into heaven, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Again, you see how the resurrection is the turning point. It's the pivot this is, again, I, I would agree with those who would say the resurrection is really the, the turning point in all of history. All right, as always, we could say much. Let me um, have us end now by looking at the last few words uh, here in verse 4. And uh, remember, those are Jesus Christ our Lord. The New King James puts it at the beginning of verse 3, but it's actually here at the end. Of verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. You remember also I mentioned that verses 1 to 7, the central words in that whole section are these right here. Jesus Christ our Lord. And so uh, the center of verses 3 and 4 is who has been appointed and such, but this is the center of the whole section. All right, so Jesus, 
This is what we might call his personal name. It means Yahweh saves. It emphasizes his humanity. It emphasizes he is a historical person. That he came, born of David, and so forth, born of Mary. Now Christ emphasizes his official name. He took on the office of mediator. God anointed Jesus to be our Savior, our Messiah, our mediator. He is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, in fulfilling the Old Testament promises. He is the one who fulfills this office, we call it. There is no other Savior. There is no other one. It is Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. And then the third word we see here is Lord. This you might call his sovereign name. He is master. He is king. He is God. He is Yahweh's son. In fact, he is Yahweh himself. There is no other master. There is no other God. There is no other savior than Jesus. And so he has authority over what we think. And of course, that's been our emphasis here in verses three and four. We need to think rightly about who he is. He is also sovereign over the decisions that we make. We must do what he says. He is sovereign over all of our thoughts, our words, our actions. We must obey him. We'll see some of that in verse 5, the obedience of faith. Um, He is also king and head of the church. He is Lord over his people. But he is also king of kings and Lord of lords. So he is sovereign over all even those who do not believe in Jesus. And so therefore, also, he is the only truth. All other religions and worldviews are inherently wrong in one way or another, or many ways. And so Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the office of Messiah, and he is our sovereign Lord and God and King. This full title given here, ends now the chiasm we started with concerning his son now we have this full name that is given and all the words in between are now better understood and so our our glorified messiah the incarnate son of god yahweh who came to be with us is jesus of nazareth and so he is worthy of our worship he is worthy of our full obedience And as Paul is going to go on to say, because of who he is, we actually have salvation. If he were anything different, we'd still be in our sins. And so let's end here today then by turning to Philippians chapter 2. Last week we read verses 5 to 8, emphasizing the uh, humiliation of Christ. And notice how verse 8 ends with the cross. And so then verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the same name, Jesus Christ the Lord here. And so the turning point is the resurrection. And so Jesus now has obeyed fully, 
And so therefore, we have salvation. So, as always, we come across passages like this. We're just barely scratching the surface. And yet, here's the fundamental ideas found here in these two verses. This is our Lord. And thanks be to God that he is this, so that we can have salvation. All right, let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for what you have uh, revealed to us here about Christ. Uh, though, Lord, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around that, we, we, we pray that you would help us to do so, that we would uh, live by faith, um, internalizing the truths that we can understand and, and are clear to us, and then trusting you for those that we, we struggle to understand. Uh, but we praise you, our Lord Jesus, for being God's Son, We praise you, our Lord Jesus, for taking on humanity, a human nature, yet without sin. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, that you did live a life of perfection and obedience to God, your Father. And because of this, you could not stay dead. And your resurrection proves your innocence, proves that you did all this on our behalf, and through the power of your Spirit, You obeyed to the end, were raised from the dead, and now sit at the right hand of God the Father, the Son of God with power. We praise you, Lord, for who you are. And uh, that day that we will be able to be in front of you and worship you without any hindrance, without any apathy, without anything to hold us back, we yearn for that day. And we praise you for who you are, and therefore, that you then have made us your own. And so we thank you for this, and we um, pray that you would help us to think rightly on these things, and that we might therefore live according to the truth. We pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.